Hey there, this is Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, and we have come across a sinner locked on the ice, maybe prone, frozen into the ice sheet of Cocytus, the ninth circle of hell, or maybe with his head craned back. Nonetheless, he has asked for relief. His tears are freezing in his eyes, and he has asked our pilgrim Dante to knock those ice crystals out so that he can cry some more. Now we're going to get the remainder of that conversation, who this figure actually is. This is a passage that has a lot of uh, historical detail inside of it. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about where we got to here in the third ring of the ninth circle of hell of Cocytus. If you don't know what that means, you should go back and catch up with us. There is so much behind us in Inferno here. Here we are at the 209th episode. There's just about 122 hours behind us of podcast episodes. So go back and catch up with us. We're going to be at Canto 33 of Inferno lines 118 through 157 to the very back of it. We're going to be talking to this soul on the ice. We're going to see whether the pilgrim alleviates his suffering or not. <laughs> you know the answer to that. No. And we will finish off Canto 33 of Inferno here on the ice sheet at the bottom of hell, the center of the world. My English translation, you can find it on my website, markscarborough.com. You can drop a comment, print it off, make notes, do as you will. Otherwise, off we go. So he replied, I am Brother Albedergal. The one who gleaned the fruit from the Garden of Evil. Here I get reimbursed a date for each fig. Hey, I said to him, are you already dead? And he to me, As to what's going on with my body and the world above, I have no idea. This circle Ptolemaea has the advantage that, often enough, a soul falls into its depths before Atropos has pushed it off. And so that you may be more willing to shave off the tears frozen on my face, know this. The moment a soul has done the sort of treachery I did, its body comes under the full control of a demon who can move it this way and that until the fullness of its time comes round. The soul then falls into this septic tank it could be that the body of the soul wintering here behind me still moves around up there. You probably know him, even if you've just gotten down here. He's Mr. Brancatoria. Many years have elapsed since he got locked in down here. I believe, I said to him, that you're lying to me. There's no way Brancatoria is dead yet. He eats and drinks and sleeps and wears clothes. In the ditch above, he said. The one with the malabranche, where the pitch is boiling hot. Michael Zanke had not yet gotten there when this one left a demon in place in his own body, as did one of his kinsmen who helped him with his treachery. Now stretch out your hand this way and open my eyes. I didn't do it, for courtesy to him would be villainy anywhere else. Ah, you Genoese men, so removed from any decency, so full of every corruption. Why have you not been driven off the face of this earth? 
with a sinful spirit from Romagna, I found one of your own taking a bath in Cocytus, while on earth he seemed to be still alive. Well, that is a wild passage. Zombies. Yup. They exist, sure enough, up here on Earth. There is a zombie apocalypse apparently going on around us with bodies walking around inhabited by demons, soulless, as the soul is already damned to hell. Here's what I'd like to do in this episode of the podcast. I'd like to first talk about the people mentioned, Brother Alberigo and then Brancatoria. I want to talk about who they are, and I'd also like to talk a little bit about the problems of identifying who they are, not historically, but artistically. Then I'd like to talk a little bit about this place, Ptolemaia. Where are we, and why is it so called, this third ring of Cocytus? I'd like to spend a little bit of time talking about the strange theology in this passage. Zombies? Seriously? But there's another little bit of theological problem going on here, and I want to finish off with that condemnation of Genoa, which reflects back to the condemnation of Pisa in the middle of the canto after Count Ugolino's monologue. Okay, so to start, let's talk about the figures here. The passage begins, so he replied, I am Brother Alberigo. So much for the idea that the damned in lower hell don't want to be known. This is such a critical trope. Oh, somehow, when you get down on Cocytus, the damned don't want to be known. Well, true, Boca didn't want to be known. That's true enough. Others of the damned, like this Fra Alberigo, Brother Alberigo, and Count Ugolino and Archbishop Ruggieri, <laughs> they say exactly who they are. It's not that they're hiding who they are. They're coming right out with it. I'm Brother Alberigo, Fra Alberigo. I don't understand why one sinner who doesn't want to be known probably because of his political treachery to Dante's own kin and Dante's own family and Dante's own political party. Probably doesn't want to be known for that. I don't understand why he is a generalization for the souls in lower hell. No, they seem to just want to step right out and still be known. It seems like even here on the ice sheet at the bottom of the world near the end of everything, people still want to be famous in some way. So who is this Fra Alberigo or Brother Alberigo? He's a member of a very prominent Guelph family, the Manfredi, the family of Faenza. They were banished from Faenza in about 1274, and they were let back in to Faenza by Tebaldello, We've already met Tebaldello. We heard about him in Canto 32, line 123, as someone traitorous to party. This is what I find incredibly interesting about the bottom of hell. It becomes very claustrophobic because it is an ice sheet, because the souls are frozen on an ice sheet, and because Dante's own text starts wrapping on itself. It's going to do it again in this passage. It's wrapping on onto itself. The text itself is becoming 
textually referential, referring to itself. And so the text itself is becoming as claustrophobic as the place itself. We heard about Tebaldello letting open the gates of Faenza to let these banished people in at Canto 32, line 23. And here's one of the people from one of the families that got back in, the Manfredi family claustrophobic. This fellow, Fra Albarigo, don't think he's a monk in some kind of decent sense of the word. He's part of that order of the Jolly Friars. Remember those two hypocrites walking around in their gilded leaden cloaks? He's that order. It's a order that does have some celibate friars in it. The large part of the order of the Jolly Friars in the Middle Ages are made up of lay friars. They're allowed to live in their own homes. And by the way, what that mostly means is their own castles. They're allowed to live in their own homes and they're allowed to be married. Lay friars, not something that we encounter in the modern world because you can figure that the uh, what capabilities, the possibilities of some kind of hypocrisy, of some kind of backhanded money dealing are unbelievably big. The possibilities for mischief, let's say, amongst lay friars, people who somehow get the church absolution while remaining non-clergy, The possibilities there for mischief are grand, to say the least. Well, here's one of them. He says he gleaned the fruit from the Garden of Evil. Here I get reimbursed a date for a fig. We're going to come back to what that means. Dante, the pilgrim, says, hey... Aren't you dead? I mean, dead? I mean, how can it be? You're already dead? Is this possible? And Alborigo responds with the crazy as to what's going on with my body in the world above. I have no idea. We know some things about this Albarigo character. We know he executed a will in 1302 and died in 1307 or just round thereabout. If he executed a will in 1302 and he died in 1307, but Dante, the poet, has backed dated this journey to the year 1300, remember we've talked about that endlessly, then this Albarigo guy would be still alive when the journey is taking place. Thus, the pilgrim's question, are you already dead? Wait a minute. No, I don't think you're dead. How can you be dead? What's the deal with the date for a fig? Well, Albarigo had his cousin and his cousin's son called in for a banquet. He set a huge banquet for them. And on his signal that the fruit be brought out, he had them murdered by hired assassins. This was all to get control of a nephew's fortune. His cousin, Alborigo's cousin, wanted to be the guardian for this nephew and therefore the controller of his fortune. Alborigo wanted to be the guardian of the nephew and the controller of the fortune. He had his cousin and his cousin's son killed at a banquet on the signal to bring out the fruit, which tells us where we are. This circle is all about those who have violated the guest host relationship. And we're going to talk about that 
in a bit when we get to the theology of the passage. I just want to focus on the historicity of the characters themselves. Alberigo mentions another figure down here with him, Mr. Brancadoria. Brancadoria is a Ghibelline nobleman of Genoa. He murdered his father-in-law, who is Michael Zanke. And he says Michael Zanke had not even gotten down here when this one left a a demon in place in his own body. That happens, and we hear about Michael Zanke in the pitch with the Barriters in that circle of fraud. It's in Inferno, Canto 22, lines 88 through 89, and he's just mentioned. Michael Zanke is just listed off as one of the people in this pitch boiling pitch of baritry by the unnamed Navarrese soul who is speaking to the pilgrim, his guide Virgil, and the many demons around them. A figure the commentators identify as Ciampolo, but that I don't think you can actually identify. So that's who he's talking about. But notice again, comedy is wrapping in on itself. I mean, Alborigo says... There's that in the ditch above, the one with the Malabranca, the evil claws, those demons, where the pitch is boiling hot. Michael Zanke had not yet gotten there when this one left a demon in place in his own body, and as did one of his kinsmen who helped him with his treachery. Again, murdering his father-in-law as a guest in his house, violating the guest-host relationship. We'll talk much more about that when we get to the theology of the passage itself. It's complicated to see from a modern perspective, but we'll talk about it. I mean, we are down here at the bottom, 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 lowest, 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 lowest level of hell down here at the bottom. And if you think the sins are in some kind of order of significance, then you should know that the violation of the guest-host relationship is almost, there's one level below us, almost as bad as it could ever get. I should also mention that Brancadoria outlived Dante. (laughs) It's kind of uh, wildly crazy, right? Apparently, Brancadoria is down here. The journey is allegedly happening in the year 1300. Dante dies in 1321, having finished Paradiso. And Brancadoria doesn't die until 1325. He still lives on. One would like to imagine Brancadoria laughing at the notion that Dante's already dead and here I am still alive reading about myself in comedy <laughs> as if I'm already dead. Listen, there's no way that I could ever know that Brancadoria ever read comedy, but it always amuses me to think of him sitting there in a chair in Genoa going, yeah, well, you know what? I'm still walking around here, buddy. And <laughs> You've already met your death. I realize that's gallows humor, but hey, I'll take it here at the bottom of hell. Let me talk to you just a minute about identifying Alborigo and Brancadoria. We say Alborigo wrote a will in 1302 and died in 1307, and therefore if the date of the journey is backdated to 1300, he has to be still alive when the journey's happening, and yada, yada, yada. We figure out all this historical stuff, and we say, you know, he killed them at a banquet, and then Brancadoria did the same thing with his father-in-law, essentially, and, you know, yada, yada, and we identify who all these people are. This is all fine. 
But there is a way in which focusing on the historical details of who these characters are obscures Dante's art. If I were to never tell you who Brother Alborigo was, but we were just to glean from the passage itself who this is without any of the historical detail around it, then we would get closer to what Dante is trying to do. One thing that is clear that is sometimes obscured by all this historical analysis of these characters is this guy is insistent on having the ice wiped out of his eyes. He asks repeatedly, are you going to do it? Are you going to do it? Are you going to do it? He is still trusting in the humanity of the people around him walking on the ice sheet. To focus on the historicity of the characters is to miss some of Dante's art. It's to miss the characterization. It's to miss what Dante's driving home. For example, here in Cogitus, it is the sinners who identify the various rings, Canina, Antinora, Ptolemaea, where we are now. It is the sinners who name the rings as we go down around them. That seems important. Why are they so concerned with naming where they are? Are they proud to be here? Is somehow part of their character to somehow be fused into the ice of the place and therefore the place is a part of who they are more so even than anyone above us in Inferno? You see, by focusing on the historicity of all the characters in Inferno, from Francesca da Ramini all the way down, we may miss what Dante's doing with them as characters in a fictional, ugh, there's a loaded word, a fictional landscape. So let's talk about this place identifies Ptolemaea, where they are. It's complicated to say the least to be able to identify the place. Basically, in commentary, there are two ways that this place is identified. Either it's called Ptolemaea from Ptolemy Twelfth, who was Pharaoh from 51 to 47 before Common Era. He's Cleopatra's brother. This is the guy who called for and ordered the assassination of Pompey after his great defeat at the Battle of Pharsalus as told by Lucan in the Pharsalia. If that's why this is so named, that is, Ptolemy Twelve has this big banquet. He orders the assassination of Pompey, who's his guest, who has fled to Egypt after his defeat at the hands of Julius at Pharsalus. If that is the case, then Dante is making a Lucan reference here at the bottom of hell. We'll come back to why that may be important in a minute. Or it's named Ptolemaea for Ptolemy, a character in the apocryphal book that the Protestants don't accept, but the Catholics do accept, of First Maccabees chapter 16 verses 11 through 17. Ptolemy is a figure who invites his father-in-law Simon Maccabeus and Simon Maccabeus's two sons to a banquet and then kills them. Again, 
guest host, killing people who think they're coming to your house for a dinner party. <laughs> You're coming over to be my guest. And instead, lo and behold, I murder you. Maybe, in fact, Ptolemy is named for both of these figures, Ptolemy the Twelfth and Ptolemy, because Simon Maccabeus renewed the alliance between Rome and the Jews in the story as told in First Maccabees. This is all about the Roman Republic just before it becomes an empire. Both examples have to do with that kind of leading edge of the empire over the republic. The empire and republic edge is going to come up bigly, to use the modern phrase, it's going to come up bigly in the 34th canto of Inferno. Maybe it's named for both of them. Let's talk just a little about the theology of what's going on here. I should mention the notion of Atropos. Notice that this soul fra Albarigo makes reference to the Greco-Roman, not the Christian, but the Greco-Roman tradition of death, that is, of the fates. And Atropos is the one who snips the thread of our fate, that clotho spins of the three fates. So what he's basically saying is that before the fates snap you off and you die, before that moment you get tossed down here. But it's so interesting that he doesn't give it a Christian context. Earlier with Guido de Montefeltro, remember if St. Francis came for a soul and then a demon grabbed it? Remember all that stuff? Here it's more classical. It's pagan. It's strange. A strange little bit of pagan theology before we descend to the insanity of having demons take over bodies there are two theological points, and let's start with the easier one first, and that's the guest host problem. The very core of medieval ethics is the relationship between guests and hosts, and let me explain this to you. When you're out traveling on a road, and you know we're talking largely unsettled pieces of land, less so in Italy than across northern Europe, but still huge swaths of land that are unsettled. You're going to come across a house on a road, and you're going to need a place to sleep for the night, and you're going to knock on the door, and you know maybe somebody's going to give you a bed of hay, <laughs> most likely hay. Maybe somebody's going to give you something to eat, but your journey is actually predicated on a host who you don't even know taking care of you. At the center, the core of medieval society, lies this relationship of the guest and the host. It is considered the most sacred relationship, more sacred than familial relationships. Why? It all stems from a New Testament book, the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, verse 2. The verse is, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for in doing so, some have entertained angels unawares. In other words, don't turn down some stranger who comes to your door because you may be turning down a messenger from God, an angel. You don't know. You don't know who everybody is. So don't neglect hospitality to strangers. This gets picked up in the Middle Ages, and it becomes a way that society is 
stabilize. Not only in a feudal system is there a stabilization because of courtesy and the ethics of chivalry, but there's a stabilization because the guest-host relationship allows commerce, travel, to happen without the threat of being killed at every turn. It allows a burgeoning middle class to get goods somewhere. It allows an increasingly mobile society to transfer information. There is no way Michael Scott could have walked from Scotland to the caliphate on the Iberian Peninsula and found the Arabic manuscripts of Aristotle and others without a lot of help from hosts he didn't know along the way, whether they be monasteries or whether they just be people living in houses. To walk from Scotland to Spain, Michael Scott needed a lot of help, and by doing so, Michael Scott opened up an entire textual reservoir of thinking that had been preserved by Islamic scholars. This virtue of guest and host is sacred, foundational. Wow, it's the bottom of it all. Of course, I sarcastically always tell people that the the next to the last rung of Dante's hell is the guest house relationship. So when I come to your house, you better open the good wine or the good champagne. You better treat me right. You better not feed me yellowtail or you're going to (laughs) end up. You're going to end up almost at the bottom of hell itself. That's not what I mean. This is much more about murdering your guests, about raping them, about doing physical harm to them, about robbing them blind and throwing them back out on the road. And in so doing, you are violating a basic human pact, not about political alliances and not about familial alliances, but even deeper down than that, about humans and how humans treat each other. Think about how we've come down. Kaina, families, Antonora, political parties and political alliances, Ptolemaea, guests and hosts, people who may or may not know each other. Now, in the case of the people here, it's their fathers-in-law, it's people that they're related to, cousins, who they're murdering. But still, we're coming down now to the question of how do you treat not your family members, not your allies, but just other human beings. That's the theology under this passage, but there's a second bit of theology in it. And that's this impossible thing of zombies. There is no theological precedent for this notion in Dante that a soul can fall out of a body and the body can carry on its life up on earth because it's being inhabited by a demon. Is there such a thing as demonic possession in Dante? Say, of course. Everybody thought people could be possessed by demons, but that doesn't mean that their soul has been hollowed out, scooped out like with a melon baller and sent down to hell, that means the soul's still inside there. It's just that a demon is in control of it. This notion that the body is hollowed out and a demon takes over, this is Dante's. There is no no theological precedent for this. This is Dante's imagination running wild. This is Dante's imagination expressing itself unbelievably freely. And I should note, there are all kinds of folkloric examples of this outside 
of Christian theology. It's so interesting to me to find the nodes of ancient European folklore inside deeply Christian things like Christmas trees and Easter eggs, the nodes of folkloric cultic practices that get pushed into a Christian rubric. Yes, there are folkloric tales of demons taking over corpses and living bodies. Is there any call for this in the New Testament? No. Yes, there's demonic possession, but that doesn't mean a soul has been vacated from the body and the body's now just the puppet of some demon inside of it who's controlling it like a homunculus. This is Dante weaving folklore into Christian theology and expanding his imagination here, even at the bottom claustrophobic moment in hell, the ice sheet itself toward the very back of his inferno, still letting his imagination open up to unbelievably grand limits. Finally, let's talk about this condemnation to Genoa at the end. Ah, you Genoese men, so removed from any decency, so full of every corruption. Why have you not been driven off the face of the earth with a sinful spirit from Romagna, that is our brother Alberigo? I found one of your own taking a bath in Cocytus, that is this guy Brancadoria, while on earth he still seemed to be alive. This is the final denunciation of central Italian towns, and I just want to review them for you in lower hell. We start to get this one after the other after the other denunciation of central Italian cities, and it begins with Bologna. Back in Canto 18, lines 58 through 63, we meet Venedico Caccianemico. He's walking around with the panderers and seducers, and he causes a condemnatory statement to come about Bologna and its ways from the pilgrim poet. First city condemned, Bologna. Second city condemned, Luca. In Canto 21, lines 37 through 42, the elder from Santa Zita is brought down by the demon to the baritry pitch, to that boiling pitch of baritry, and to be thrown in. And then in lines 37 through 42, we get the condemnation of Luca. Bologna, Luca, and then Pistoia. Pistoia in Canto 25, lines 10 through 15, with the thieves. Vanifucci, he runs off. Remember, he gives the signal of the figs uh, to God, a, a rude hand gesture. He's chased off by Caucus the centaur. And then we get the pilgrim poets, or mostly the poets, condemnation of Pistoia, where Vanifucci comes from. Interestingly, as a tie here, Vanifucci, as we start down into lower hell, gives God the sign of the figs, and here Fra Alberigo claims he is being reimbursed a date for a fig. As we start down through the thieves, we have a reference to figs. Here at the bottom of Cocytus, we have a reference to figs. Is that intentional? It's Dante. 
It probably is. We got a poet who's absolutely in love with structure. We have got all kinds of metamorphoses running around. And that metamorphoses with the thieves where either they ignite and come back together and reconstitute like a phoenix or change positions with each other. That's similar to this metamorphosis in which a body is suddenly vacated of its soul and a demon replaced in it. And in both cases, we have references to figs. Nicely done, Dante. So Bologna, Luca, Pistoia, and then Florence in Canto 26, lines one through six, still with the thieves, still with their metamorphoses. That Canto starts by condemning Florence by saying, hey, Florence, you must be so proud. I found so many of your members amongst the thieves here. Bologna, Luca, Pistoia, Florence, and then Siena. Amongst the counterfeiters, Albero of Siena is sitting there and Dante turns the pilgrim to Virgil and says, you know, is there anybody as bad as the Sienese, except for maybe the French? <laughs> and even they're not quite as bad as the Sienese. <laughs> wow, if you're, if you're worse than the French for Dante, you must be terrible. That's in Canto 29, lines 121 through 132. And from there, then, in this Canto 33, we have the context condemnation of Pisa after Ugolino, and now here the condemnation of Genoa. Bologna, Luca, Pistoia, Florence, Siena, Pisa, Genoa, and each time they get louder. And this is the loudest one of all. Why have you not been driven off the face of the earth? This condemnation is global. It is unbelievably tribalistic. It is unbelievably vicious. Surely there are people with some decency and not just completely corrupt walking around Genoa. The condemnations get louder and louder as we descend in lower hell until we hit this point. This is the big question. What is Christian? What is ethical? What is justice? The pilgrim does not take the ice crust out of Alborigo's eyes. In fact, he says that if I was courteous to him, if I did any courtesy to him, it would just be villainy given where we are. I mean, down here to do a courteous act is actually to do a villainous act towards someone because we are so far down in hell. What's human? What's Christian? What's justice? What's ethical? These are questions that are larger than this podcast, but they are brought up by the text. And here's the problem. And I've told you this once, and I'm going to tell you again because it's a huge problem in Western thought. In Western thought, evil is seen as being either systemic or individuated. That is, it's either caused by a political, cultural, historical, religious, or social construct, or it's my choice, and I did it. And then, of course, for much of Western Civ, the answer is it's both. It's my fault, and it's also the fault of the social rubric around me. That bit, that it's both, causes all kinds of problems because then you are not only responsible for your own evil acts, 
but your own evil acts are then done, created, fabricated, limited by historical context around you that are completely out of your control. And so, therefore, everyone from Genoa should be wiped off the face of the earth. This is all bringing up much bigger historical and ethical points than I want to take on in this podcast, which is so much about close reading comedy. But you should know that I have great problems with Canto 33, and it's not because of the weird theology of bodies walking around inhabited by demons that have got no souls in them. It's not because the guest host relationship is considered so sacred in the Middle Ages, and it's so different from my way of thinking about ethics. It's not because I don't really know where whether Ugolino ate his children or not in Canada 33, it's really the condemnation of Pisa and Genoa. They're so general, so overarching, so loud, so wipe them all out. It's so belligerent. It's so tribalistic that I really back up from it all. Now, let me say one thing to you about that. I don't need Saint Dante. I don't need to excuse Dante's every error, and I don't need to somehow give Dante the benefit of the doubt in order to keep him holy so that I don't think anything ill of him. No, I need a great poet. And in Dante, I have a great poet. Does that mean he sometimes stumbles into places where I can say to him, hey boy, back up. Your tribalism is getting a little out of control. Of course. Does that mean I think less of him? No, it does not. You know, if you've listened to this podcast, I love Virginia Woolf's writing. I love Mrs. Dalloway. I love To the Lighthouse. I love The Waves more than I can possibly say. I think they are absolute tour de forces of literary achievement. Is that tours de force? Maybe it's tours de force, not tour de forces. Okay, whatever. Tours de force. How about they're great masterpieces (laughs) of literary accomplishment. But Virginia Woolf herself is a problematic figure, not because she put stones in her pockets and walked into a river and killed herself, but because at times she became so overtly anti-Semitic. So bad, in fact, that on a car trip across Europe during the rise of fascism in Germany, she had her Jewish husband drive down the middle of a parade in a town, and she sat in the car as if they were a part of the fascistic parade, waving at the crowd, almost as a way to torture her Jewish husband husband. Do I think less of Virginia Woolf's achievement because of this? No, I do not. Mrs. Dalloway is still a masterwork of Western literature. Same with comedy. Do I find Dante falls into a terrifying tribalism that makes me back up? Yes, but I don't need Saint Dante. I need a great poet and I got one. Before we exit this podcast, let's have one reading of the entire rung of Ptolemaea. We have just blipped through Ptolemaea in the last half of a canto, lines 91 through what, 157. We just kind of blipped right through this thing. And I'd like to read the whole thing back from 91 out to the end of Canto 33 as a conclusion to our stay amongst those who have been treacherous in the guest host relationship. 
We hiked farther on, out to the part of the ice sheet that so crudely enwraps another group of people. These faces weren't turned down, but craned up at us. Down there, their tears prevent their tears. Their sorrow, which gets blocked up over their eyes, is then backed up inwardly to make their affliction worse. The first tears become a frozen knot, which then, like a crystal visor, fills up the cup under their brow with more tears. At this point, although my face, like a callus, had gone numb from the bitter cold and had no more feeling in it, it seemed to me as if I felt some definite wind. So I... My master, who makes this wind move? Has not every bit of vapor been laid to rest down here? And he to me, you'll soon get to the spot where your own eyes will give you the answer for the source of these gusts. That's when one of the damned in the ice crust cried out to us, Oh, cruel soul, so totally cruel that you were damned to the last stop on this road. Lift these hard veils from my eyesight so I can vent a little of the pain that seizes my heart, just a bit, before my tears freeze solid again. And so I to him, if you want me to help you, tell me who you are. If I don't ease your distress, may I be sent down to the bottom of this glacier. So he replied, I'm Brother Alborigo, the one who gleaned the fruit from the Garden of Evil. Here I get reimbursed a date for each fig. Hey, I said to him, are you already dead? And he to me, as to what's going on with my body in the world above, I've no idea. This circle called Ptolemaea has the advantage that often enough a soul falls into its depths before Atropos has pushed it off. And so that you might be more willing to shave off the tears frozen on my face, know this, the moment a soul has done the sort of treachery I did... Its body comes under the control of a demon who can move it this way and that until the fullness of its time comes round. The soul then falls into this septic tank. It could be that the body, the soul wintering here behind me, still moves around up there. You probably know him, even if you've just gotten down here. He's Brancatoria. Many years have elapsed since he got locked in down here. I believe, I said to him, that you're lying to me. There's no way Brancadoria is dead yet. He eats and drinks and sleeps and wears his own clothes. In the ditch above, he said, the one with the Malabranca, where the pitch is boiling hot, Michael Zanke had not yet gotten there when this one left a demon in place in his own body, as did one of his kinsmen who helped him with his treachery. Now stretch out your hand this way and open my eyes. But I didn't do it. For courtesy to him would be villainy anywhere else. Ah, you Genoese men, so removed from any decency, so full of every corruption, why have you not been driven off the face of the earth? With a sinful spirit from Romagna, I found one of your own taking a bath in Cocytus. While on earth, he seemed to be alive. We've come to the end of Canto 33, and we are moving on to Canto 34. We're moving on to Virgil. And a Latin incantation. What? Yep. Up next, in the next episode of this podcast, we're going to come to the 34th and last canto of Inferno. To get there, please subscribe to this podcast. Please rate it. Contact me through my website, markscarborough.com. I'd love to have more conversations with you. People are leaving great comments there on the website. You can engage with those comments. You can engage with me. You can write me directly or look for me on social media, particularly on Twitter under my own name, Mark Scarborough. I don't care that Twitter is collapsing around us. I'm still there. So you can just look me up or hashtag at Walking with Dante and I'll find you and come back 
Because we got one canto to go. How can this be? One canto to go. And we will be done with Inferno. It's unbelievable. I don't even understand it. Nonetheless, I'm Mark Scarborough. This is Walking with Dante. And I'll see you very soon.